Please be seated. As you take your seat, you can turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 11. We've been in a series of messages since the end of January in the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves this morning at the end of chapter 11 in verses 25 through 36. This is really an ending of sorts that refers to the last three chapters, a unit, if you will, of the letter to the Romans, but also the entire book, because Paul has been outlining the theology of the Christian life in chapters 1 through 11. And a big change that we'll see the next time we're together is that from chapter 12 onward, we see a very practical emphasis the outworking of our theology in Christian practice. What does that look like day by day? But for this morning, we might say that we have reached the summit of chapters 9 through 11 and really the whole of the first 11 chapters of the letter to the Romans. That's why we find Paul giving a doxology here at the end of the passage. I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is summing up He's trying to sum up a lot of things that he has already taught and said about Jews and Gentiles, about the one new people of God that are made up from both Jews and Gentiles, coming together to form the household of God. And so I think he gives some last instructions here as we come to the close of this chapter. And I'd like to mention three things that I've been thinking about and pondering this past week, and maybe you will too, as we go through the passage. Uh, Number one, I believe Paul gives us a call to remember and reflect upon God's mystery in Christ Jesus. God's mystery in Christ Jesus. And we see that in verses 25 through 27. And then secondly... A call to recognize God's presence and activity in the lives of others. And I believe that is in verses 28 through 32. And then thirdly and finally, a call to rejoice and worship the Lord. And obviously we see that in verses 33 through 36. So along with a summary of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless these moments of our worship service as we study his word together. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. Help us to wait patiently upon you and your Spirit as you speak to our hearts of eternal things. We'll give you all the praise and glory for what you will do in our lives at the end of it, Lord, and we make our prayer now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, a call to remember and reflect on God's mystery in Christ Jesus. After his allegory, which we looked at last time about the olive tree, Paul addresses his readers directly again. He's going to outline the future of both Gentiles and Jews. And first, in verse 25a, he tells them he does not want them to be uninformed of this mystery. The mystery is not a secret that is known by only a few of the initiated, but a secret that has been openly revealed and has therefore become public truth. And this mystery is Christ himself. 
Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul speaks of a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ in himself, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, unfortunately, some read this as if the mystery is not so much Christ himself, but the details of how God works among the Jews and Gentiles to bring about salvation. The wording can give that impression. He says, I do not want you to be, uh, brethren, uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know, there are some things in the Bible that are mysterious that we will never understand. And there are some things that are mysterious that are made known to us. That's why Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed are for us and for our children. These are some of the most controversial words throughout all the letter to the Romans. And we need to take care how we read it. Paul wants us to be un- not to be uninformed about this mystery. That doesn't mean we're going to understand every single part of the mystery. And that is that God is bringing together Jew and Gentile in Christ. What Paul is trying to emphasize is that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the essence of God's true mystery. Is it mysterious that God would bring Jew and Gentile together? Yes, that's unfathomable. That they would ever get along. But what's more unfathomable than that is the fact that God would save any sinners. That God would bother to reach down by his grace and mercy and save sinners. And so Paul tells them, don't be wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't be conceited about this mystery. And then he speaks of this partial hardening that is happening. You'll notice in verse 25b, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Again, the extremely controversial words. What does the fullness of the Gentiles mean? Well, Paul is referring to the number of Gentiles, the number of Gentile elect that will come into the kingdom of God. He makes that statement, all Israel will be saved. What do these words mean? Well, frankly, I don't know. I don't have a clue. (laughs) Not as anybody else. In fact, even in our own circles, our own theologians disagree on what this means. John Calvin believed it was a reference to the church, the Israel of God, as Paul calls it in Galatians 6, 16. So there's room for that. John Murray, on the other hand, said it was exegetically impossible to give to Israel in this verse any other denotion than that which belongs to the term throughout the chapter. In other words, when you interpret the biblical data, you try to be consistent with the way that Paul uses Israel in the chapter. But that isn't always right either. Bottom line is, there's room for both. We could read this and saying God is bringing in the Gentiles as a result of Jewish disobedience, and therefore the true Israel of God, the whole people of God, will be saved. I prefer that reading. But even if we read it in a different way and we talked about literal Israel... What Paul is saying is, he's speaking of that remnant. Not all, without exception, but all those who are elect in Christ Jesus are going to come in to the family of God, this remnant 
of Jews that Paul has been talking about throughout this entire section of verses 9 through 11. And then you'll notice the most important part, and that is he quotes from several places in the Old Testament about this coming deliverer. Look at verse 26b and 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I want you to notice a couple of things about these verses. They make three affirmations. Number one, the deliverer will come from Zion. This is Isaiah's wording for the fact that Christ uh, and his first coming would take place, the incarnation. Secondly, that what he will do when he comes is described in moral terms, not political. He would turn godlessness away from Jacob. This seems to allude to Isaiah 27 verse 9 and Isaiah 59 that we read this morning where Jacob's guilt would be atoned for and removed. And thirdly, it says the deliverer would establish God's covenant, which promised the forgiveness of sins. And so when you put all these together, the deliverer, the Lord himself, brings his people repentance and forgiveness of sins according to God's gracious covenant. And we might add his new covenant in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that Paul doesn't make any reference. He makes no reference to politics here. He makes no reference to Jews setting up a temple. He makes no reference to Christ coming again for some sort of a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. In my opinion, nothing could be more anticlimactic after all the Lord Jesus has been through. And I think Paul is saying, look, don't get too caught up. When a lot of people read these verses, they start to think, well, is all Israel going to be saved? And what is God doing bringing Jews back to Zion? And before we know it, we can be extremist. But you see, the material point is not so much what's happening over in Jerusalem and what may happen in the future, but the material point is God has sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. There will not be a separate salvation for Jews from the Gentiles. It's only Jesus by faith. We must trust him. And if we get too caught up in the small, mysterious parts of all this about Israel, about Jerusalem, about Jews, about Palestinians, if we get too caught up in all this small stuff, we lose the big picture. And that is that God is making one people for himself made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he himself is the one who does the saving. I love Isaiah 59, that lengthy passage we read this morning. For this reason, it shows our utter sinfulness, as Paul quotes in Romans 3. But it also shows that our salvation is completely by the grace of God. If you read that carefully at the very end, you see that the Lord is disturbed, that no one is available to save his people. And so he girds himself with strength and armor, and he himself goes to save his people. It is a picture of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. God himself coming to rescue his own children. And that is the great mystery in Christ Jesus. And that gives us great, great balance as we look at our fellow man. See, what Paul is saying is don't lose sight 
of the overarching ministry, which is Christ himself. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. Paul refers to that the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been made manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. We can devote ourselves to trying to figure out God's exact plan for the future. Many people have written books on this. They have speculated. They have misinterpreted Scripture. And I believe they lose sight of the focus, which is Christ. Getting so caught up in what we call eschatology, the study of end times. Even at the very beginning in Acts 1-7, the Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus gave a rebuke to his disciples. You remember right before his ascension, the disciples says, Lord, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit and you shall be my witnesses. See, the greatest mystery is not what God will do in Jerusalem or amongst the Palestinians in their relationship to one another or us. The greatest thing is that Christ has come to live inside of us, that a holy and a sovereign God would think of sinners, show us grace and mercy, and come and not only rescue us from our sin, but take up residence in our lives. That is a great mystery. And it's something that those who do not know Christ cannot even fathom of this great God that we worship. Don't lose sight of your first love and your priority as a believer. Keep and remember and reflect on God's mystery in Christ Jesus. Don't miss the forest for the trees. A second thing I think Paul mentions here is a call to recognize God's presence and activity in the lives of others. Notice quickly, he gives a contrast first in verses 28 and 29. Enemies from the standpoint of the gospel, beloved for the sake of the fathers. That is their election. Paul is encouraging believers to keep this contrast, this balance in mind in their relationship with others, the Jews in this case. I think it's a wider application for us to view our interaction with other human beings with balance. We know this from Paul's commission to Jesus, from Jesus' commission to Paul. You remember in Acts 23, uh, Jesus appeared to Paul and said, I'm sending you, I'm going to deliver you from those I'm sending you to, the Jews and the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the domain of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by me. He's saying there's a contrast going on here. And when you Romans, when you Roman Christians look at your fellow uh, Christians and you realize they're Jews and you look out and realize there are Jews that have not yet believed, keep something in mind. Number one, they may oppose your gospel. But number two, they have a heritage there. And that heritage can be pricked by the Holy Spirit. And so act with wisdom, act with gentleness, act with kindness in your dealings with others. He goes on to give a comparison. Look at verses 30 and 31. 
just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also have been disobedient that because of your mercy shown to you, they also will be shown mercy. These verses contain a comparison rather than a contrast. Human disobedience and divine mercy are depicted in the experience of both Gentiles and Jews. The obvious difference is that whereas God has already been merciful to disobedient, repentant Gentiles, his mercy to disobedient Israel belongs largely to the future. The Gentiles receive mercy by Jewish disobedience, whereas Jews will receive mercy by the way of mercy shown to the Gentiles. To put it another way, it is because of disobedient Israel that disobedient Gentiles have received mercy. And it is because of this mercy that disobedient Jews will receive mercy. You see what Paul's doing? First he says they're enemies, but they're also beloved. And then he says, look a little closer, and you're very much alike. Mercy led to mercy. The disobedience of one led to the obedience of the other. We read in John 10 this morning, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. A reference to the Gentiles. And notice his conclusion. He sums it all up in verses 30 to 32. Paul has demonstrated how God masterfully employs disobedience of the Jews to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles. And he shows how his mercy to Gentiles is instrumental in showing mercy to unbelieving Jews. And finally, in this verse, he takes it up a notch by pointing out exactly what we learned in Romans 3. That is that God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all peoples. Now the point of all this by application is authentic Christians recognize that both the enemy and the elect are scattered throughout every people group on the planet. Authentic Christians recognize that both the enemy and the elect are scattered in every people group. When Paul went to Corinth, that really pagan, super pagan city in Acts 18 verses 9 through 11, the Lord appeared to him by night and said, don't be worried. Don't be afraid. Keep on preaching. I have many people in this city. The Lord had already gone before him and said, there are my elect children here and you're going to be the instrument, Paul, in the preaching of the word to bring them to spiritual life. Now this reality helps us as we look at our fellow men and women. We're not to get our eyes fixed on ourselves. There's plenty of that out in the culture. But what Paul is saying is, look not only to the mystery of Christ in your own life, but look around you to those who don't know Christ yet and recognize God's presence and activity in the lives of others. This is what our world is not doing right now, incidentally. This whole problem over in Gaza, it is splitting college campuses apart. It is destroying relationships in schools, amongst faculty members, and even in corporate America. And I'll tell you why. Because of this blind allegiance to one group over the other. When we read the Bible in an uncareful manner, it's easy to start thinking, I support Israel regardless of what they do. It's also easy to say, I will not support Israel. I will support the Palestinians. And we could find ourselves with this extremism. And that's what's destroying our country. 
Whereas the authentic Christian recognizes, yes, Jews have a heritage, but they're enemies to the gospel. And in like manner, yes, Palestinians are enemies of the gospel, many of them, but they're also made in the image of God. And you see this balance? Paul is saying, look at people like this, and it'll change the way that you deal with them. Look at others and see the activity of God in their lives. I think that's true in our own family units. I have distant relatives who are opposed to the gospel. And it would be real easy for me to write them off and say, I don't want anything else to do with you. You're obnoxious. You're rude. I don't even like visiting with you. Most of them aren't dying inside of the family. <laughs> I'm going to hear about that when I get home. No, that's not true. <laughs> But when I approach it with a perspective of you're made in the image of God and you've had experiences in your life that for some reason have stifled the impact of the gospel, that changes things. Christians ought to show balance and love and concern. We ought to call for justice amongst people groups and not become racist and not become overly committed to one group over the other as if we lose sight of that. I support Israel in these days, not because they're Jews, but because they had an act of terrorism against them. And I'll support any country that has terrorism and that exercises the right to defend themselves. That's justice. But I am not going to give blind allegiance to anyone, nor blind resistance to anyone. I want to see people come into the kingdom. Jew or Gentile, no matter what their background might be. Paul says, I call you to recognize God's presence and activity in the lives of others. And then finally and quickly, a call to rejoice and to worship in the Lord. I love Paul's words at the end of this. Not surprising. After all that he has said, he breaks out in worship and adoration. In verse 33, he speaks of the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. And he continues, his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. As we saw in the first point, God's mysterious ways should lead us not to probe where we can't go, not to search for the unsearchable. It should lead to humility, praise, and worship. Sometimes we get so proud, though, we have to have all the answers. But there's plenty of mystery in the Bible, and it will remain that way. Better to devote yourself to praise and worship of this great God. If Paul, with his brilliant intellect, humbles himself, how much more should we? I don't know all the Lord is doing, and I don't know what it's all going to look like in the end. I know he's going to return, and I know he will be king of kings and lord of lords, and every eye will see him. And that's all that really matters. He goes on to reinforce this by asking two questions. Who, in verse 34, has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? And the obvious answer is no one. We know only what God is pleased to reveal about himself. And he has no counselor but himself. His thoughts and ways are so far beyond ours that it's arrogant to try to figure them out. It should lead to humility. He says in Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. 
He goes on to say in verse 35, who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? And the obvious answer again is no one. God is not a debtor to anyone. He is creditor to everyone. He is completely self-existent and self-sustaining, in need of nothing. He owes nothing to anyone, yet all owe everything to him. And finally, Paul concludes in verse 36, the whole with an affirmation. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Everything and everyone comes from him. He is our origin. Everything and everyone is moving toward him. He is our destination. And through him we discover our true worth, significance, and purpose as beloved children of God purchased by the blood of Christ. He's inescapable. Paul is calling us to bow the knee even in our ignorance often that we don't understand everything about this great, awesome God. We do know those things that are necessary for salvation to profess faith in him. I pray that that's your experience this morning, that you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, God's mystery, and that he lives inside of your life and you have received the forgiveness of sins and redemption as a result of his birth and death and resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these marvelous words of the Apostle Paul. Father, we thank you that we're like little children in preschool when it comes to biblical faith and truth. We want to grow, Lord, and yet we want to go no further than your word goes. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to worship you in light of the great mystery of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be students, but know how far to go. Help us, Lord, to not lose sight of the forest for the trees. And Lord, bless us as we move forward to your table and as we remember these truths about our interaction with you and with others. It gives us cause for worship and rejoicing. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.